welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 15. Last week, I covered one of the more legendary ancient cities of the Middle East, Petra, along with two lesser-known places, Jazer and Kenneth. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm circling back to the region west of the Jordan River as a whole, a place known as Transjordan. Then, I'll cover many smaller places that tend to go unnoticed. And with that, let's get started. West of the Jordan River, in what is today the country of Jordan, is a region known as Transjordan. Had I this chapter of the podcast to do over again, I would likely cover the region first, before getting into the specific places that were in it. You'll quickly understand why. Overall, Transjordan refers to the region on the opposite side of the Jordan River from where most of the Israelites would settle. When Joshua led them across the Jordan River, they were crossing from Transjordan into Canaan, what would become most of the Promised Land. In some translations, and in many ancient texts, it was referred to as beyond the Jordan, and sometimes east of the Jordan. Modernly, it's commonly called the East Bank, since it sits on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Way before the Israelites returned, and even before Jacob and sons left for Egypt, of course, there were settlers in this region. The original inhabitants were likely the Amorites, who would give way to the Shazu. This semi-nomadic group spoke a variation of Semitic and relied on herding, mostly cattle, for their livelihood. They were even recorded in Egyptian records, with six of their subgroups being listed in a text as the enemy of Pharaoh Amenhotep III, who ruled in the 15th century BC. This was likely somewhere around the time Jacob and family were relocating to Egypt. The next several hundred years saw great upheaval in Transjordan. At some point, a people known as Amalu would come, then go. Then the Arameans. The region would also see the Hittites and the Assyrians. All names that, to one degree or another, should seem familiar. When the Israelites returned, some 400 years later, the tribes of Reuben and Gad would settle fully in Transjordan. And this makes a certain amount of sense. The Sashuv used the land for the grazing of their livestock, and these two tribes were livestock herders. Thinking back to the conversation the tribal leaders had with Moses, when they asked to be allotted this land east of the Jordan, Moses was concerned they wouldn't help their fellow Israelites conquer the rest of the territory. They assured him they would, so he went along with it. Half of Manasseh would also be settled here. Reuben and Gad were given land won from King Sihon, while Manasseh was given the land taken from King Og. I'll cover these two kings in the next episode. Thinking about it differently, Reuben and Gad were south of the Jabbok River, while Manasseh was settled north. Later in the history of the Israelites, the division between the tribes, and especially the geographic division highlighted by the Jordan River, became problematic. In the book of Joshua, as the Israelites began driving out the occupants of Canaan, 
To the west of the Jordan, the tribes in Transjordan did come to the aid of their brethren. After the battles in Joshua 22, these eastern tribes returned to their homes and built a large altar by the Jordan River. Apparently, the other tribes, those west of the Jordan, didn't like this and prepared to fight the Transjordanian tribes. Before they did, though, they sent a diplomatic delegation to attempt to reach a peace. The western tribes accused the eastern ones of making God angry by building this altar. Remember that after the construction of the tabernacle, sacrifices became the province of the priestly Levites. They also accused the easterners of being unclean. The easterners explained that the altar wasn't for sacrifices, but was more of a memorial. In the words of several translations, the altar was to serve as a witness for all of the tribes. The Westerners bought the explanation and went home without a fight. It's been proposed that the Transjordanian tribes purposely built the altar so large as to provoke a reaction from their brothers to the West. A little intentional sibling rivalry. Before and during the occupation of Transjordan by the two and a half tribes, there were, of course, other people there, primarily the Ammonites and the Moabites. In Genesis 19, we're told that these two peoples descended from Abraham's nephew Lot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. While they were distant relatives of Jacob, and therefore the tribes, they were consistently presented as adversaries of the Israelite tribes as they attempted to settle in the region, post-Exodus. In Deuteronomy, the Ammonites would not allow the Israelites to pass through their territory. Later, in Judges, the Ammonites would ally with the Moabite king Eglon to fight the Israelites. The Ammonites would continue to attack Israelite cities in Transjordan, all of this is thought to have been one of the catalysts for the eventual uniting of the tribes under King Saul. Later, King Solomon would marry an Ammonite woman, Nama, which shouldn't be a surprise given the hundreds of wives he had. What was unusual is that she was the only wife specifically named as having born a child, Rehoboam. Later, when Nehemiah was prophesying, during the Second Temple period, the Ammonites would intermarry with the Israelites. In that time, it was common for Israelite men to marry women from outside of the religion, without the women converting to Judaism. By their standards, this meant the children produced by these relationships were not Jewish. The same cultural regulation made David's claim to the throne a bit tenuous, as he was descended from Ruth, a Moabite woman. While Ammon David, he did flee to Transjordan when he was escaping his son Absalom's attempted coup. Overall, after the Israelites took control of the area, their regional history would parallel that of the eastern tribes. Israel, then the Assyrians, then the Ammonites, the Babylonians, the Persians, and on and on. The Nabataeans, who I touched on last week as part of the history of Petra, made their money off trade. Essentially, they built a trading network that was centered on a string of oases that they controlled. Many of these were in the Transjordan region. 
I'll get to their in-depth history at some point in the future. Overall, the region was in a constant state of flux, until the Romans. Most of the cities of the Decapolis I touched on in the last episode were in Transjordan. Beginning in 37 BC, parts of the region were under Herod, as part of Judea, operating as a client state to Rome. These included Samaria and Perea. Herod would die in 4 BC, after which the kingdom was divided among his sons, forming the Herodian Tetrarchy, and the Romans would control the region until their eventual collapse. Not long after that, there were the Islamists, followed by the Crusaders, then the Islamists again. Eventually, the region would end up in the hands of the Ottomans, until the 20th century. During World War I, when the Ottomans were aligned with the Germans and company, the British convinced many Arabs in the region to revolt against the Ottomans, and they did. Between June 1916 and October 1918, the revolt, along with the Ottomans siding on the losing side, led to the creation of the Emirate of Transjordan in 1921. The country was a British protectorate. In 1946, the Emirate gained its independence from the British, and in 1952, the country changed its name to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the same kingdom that exists today. And that's Transjordan. One of the better understood cities in Transjordan was Beth Nimrah. Sometimes you will see this as Nimran, or Bethanibris. In Numbers 32, it was Beth Nimrah. It was located in the Jordan Valley, in a low plain, on the north side of the plains of Moab. This would place it to the north of the Dead Sea by about 8 miles or 12 kilometers. It was also 10 miles or 16 kilometers east of Jericho. When the Israelites arrived, the city was allotted to the tribe of Gad. Later, in the book of Joshua, it was said to have been, prior to the Israelites, part of the kingdom of Sihon. After the Babylonian exile, in the 4th century BC, it would be on the far eastern side of Jewish settlement and control. Then there's a curious artifact. The mosaic of Rehob, also known as the Tel Rehob inscription, was made between the 3rd and 6th centuries AD. It was discovered in 1973, inlaid in the floor of an ancient synagogue near Tel Riyadh, about 3 miles, 4.5 kilometers, south of Beit Sheen. It's also about 4 miles, 7 kilometers, west of the Jordan River. It contains the longest written text discovered in any mosaic in Israel and also the oldest Talmudic text, at least discovered so far. In the mosaic is a mention of the town of Beth Nimrah. Around 65 AD, the village was the site of an intense battle during the First Jewish-Roman War, fought while Vespasian was emperor. The battle ended with the defeat of the town's Jewish defenders. After this defeat, the Romans did what they normally did in victory and slaughtered the masses, ransacked anything of value, and burned the village, which was not rebuilt. So, that's it for Beth Nimrah. Another place mentioned in Numbers 32 is Havith Yer. 
it's not thought to be a single place given the context in the narrative, which reads, Yer, son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages, and renamed them Haveth Yer. In total, it's believed to be a region that encompassed some 60 towns that were located on the eastern side of the land allotted to Manasseh, specifically to the family of Machir. There were also 33 villages in Gilead, which was part of Gad, and another 30 in Gilead proper. This subdivision is mentioned in 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and Judges. Those villages allotted to Machir were later identified in Deuteronomy 3 as having high walls, double gates, and bars, so overall well fortified. Later, when Solomon was on the throne, one of his deputies, Beth Geber, would be in charge of this well fortified district. The region was also identified as including the town of Argob, and included part of a rocky region, along with the rolling plain of Bashan. It was thought to have been previously ruled over by King Og. As for the name, Haveth Yer, it may translate as the Hamlets of Yer, which would make sense, as they did end up being named after their conqueror, Yer. What's unclear is if this Yer was a son of Manasseh or Gilead. Do note that the Gileadites and the Manassehites were related, so it could be a case of splitting hairs. Also in Numbers 32 is a place known as Kiriathim. Some sources think there were two cities that share the name, not that this helps narrow down where either one was. One of these was a city built by the tribe of Reuben, obviously in the territory given to them, built east of the Dead Sea and between that sea and the Arnon River. It would later be captured by the Moabites. The other city with the same name was in the territory of the tribe of Naphtali, but it was a Levitical city. And that's all that's known about Kirarithim. Also mentioned in Numbers 32 is the place Arur. It too is located in what is today the country of Jordan, on the north bank of the Arnon River and to the east of the Dead Sea. It's thought to be in the same place as the modern town of Arir, which would place it about 11 miles, 18 kilometers, west of where the Arnon flows into the Dead Sea. It appears to have remained a viable city through at least the era of Eusebius, at least based on his writings, which would mean at least through the 4th century AD. Before the Israelites arrived, it was a Moabite city, then captured by the Amorite king Sihon. Evidence of it having been a former Moabite city is found in both Numbers 21 and the Mesha Stele. The Israelites would defeat Sihon, taking his territory as a spoil of war. The town would be rebuilt by the Gadites, as mentioned in Numbers 32. But when the territory was allotted, despite having been rebuilt by the Gadites, Arur would go to the tribe of Reuben. It was likely on the southern end of that tribe's land holdings. Later, the Israelites, specifically King Jehoram of Israel and King Azaziah of Judah, fought the Aramean king Haziel. The Arameans won and took the city, among others. Haziel then repelled two attacks by the Assyrians, seized more Israelite territory east of the Jordan River, along with the Philistine city of Gath, 
Haziel also tried to take Jerusalem, as seen in 2 Kings 12. But the king of Judah sent him tributes, including all of the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house. And the Baioth worked as the Aramean king withdrew. In the next chapter, 2 Kings 13, his death is noted, as is his successor, his son Ben-Hadid. Circling back to the city of Arur, at some point the Arameans would lose the city to the Moabites, as Jeremiah 48 reads that it was a Moabite city. And this is no surprise, as the constant shifting of boundaries is as old as mankind, civilization, and history itself. Then, in a prophecy found in the 17th chapter of the book of Isaiah, the cities of Arur were predicted to become deserted. At least the NIV and King James reads the cities of Arur. New Revised Standard reads that the cities of Damascus would become deserted, though the footnote in this version does note that it could also be the cities of Arur. In this case, the New Revised Standard is leaning on the Septuagint version of the ancient Hebrew text. Finally, in all three versions used for the podcast, Joshua 15 mentions a town called Adada. Some researchers think the listing of this city may be a long-since-dead scribe's error, and the original may have been Arur. Add that to the list of issues and questions that neither matter terribly much and that we may never have a solid answer to. The next place, Adaroth, is also vaguely known and found in Numbers 32. The word used in ancient Hebrew translates to either cattle or cattle pens, implying that the residents were cattle herders, and likely the herders of other livestock. In the Old Testament, the name may refer to a single town, or even two or three different places. Let's explore the three-town theory. The first would be east of the Jordan, in Gilead, placing it in Transjordan. This is likely the one mentioned in two separate places in Numbers 32. Like Arur, it would be rebuilt by the Gadites, and then allotted to the tribe of Reuben. It's thought to be the same as the ancient archaeological site known as Kerbet Adaraz, which is north of the Wadai Haidan. The town was also in Transjordan, so the modern country of Jordan. The Meshastili, also sometimes noted as the Moabite Stone, I've touched on this monument in several past episodes. It dates to about 840 BC and was inscribed to commemorate Mesha's victory over the son of Omri. The stone does not say which son, though. It claims that the Moabite king Mesha massacred all the Israelites at Adaroth, as satisfaction for the bloodlust of their deity Chemosh and Moab. The stele records that the king captured Nebo, thought to be the same place as the first possible Adaroth I'm covering. In capturing the city, Mesha killed everyone, a total of 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and maidens. Literally, everyone. The second possible location of Adaroth is a town west of the Jordan, and being west of the Jordan, it would not be located in Transjordan. This is thought to be the location mentioned in Joshua 16, and again in the 18th chapter of that book. This second Adaroth is used as a landmark for the southern border of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, 
More specifically, it would be at the points where the border between these two tribes in the north would butt up against the tribe of Benjamin in the south. As for its geographic location, depending on who you ask, it could be Adaroth in the modern Israel on the west bank of the Jordan. Another proposed site is Kerbet Ederia. Though this archaeological location is an Abitian site in southern Jordan, which does not align with the text of Joshua. The third possible place that had the name Adaroth is a small town west of the Jordan River. It too could have been on the border of Ephraim and mentioned in Joshua 16. Adding to this confusion is that locations 2 and 3 could have been the same place. Such is the plight of archaeologists and biblical researchers. Another place in Numbers 32 is Beth Haran, sometimes seen as Beth Aram. In this form, it seems like it might be a city of the Arameans. That's thought to be merely a coincidence, though. It was another Transjordanian city, located on the flat plain east of the Jordan River. It, too, was one from the Amorite king Sihon. And unlike the past couple of cities, it was rebuilt by Gad, then assigned to them by Moses. Sometime later, the Greeks would change its name to Beth Aramatha. In the first century AD, Herod Antipas, aka Herod the Tetrarch, and King Herod, who was the son of Herod the Great, would fortify the town. This Herod was the ruler of Galilee and Perea. As for the Tetrarch title, it simply means that he ruled a quarter, likely meaning over a quarter of his father's former territory. It was this Herod that had John the Baptist put to death. He also made another appearance in the New Testament. Despite Jerusalem not being in his territory, he was in the city when Jesus was on trial and played a role in that affair. Obviously, there will be much more on him at some point in the future. Back to Beth Haran, turned Beth Aramatha. This Herod would name it Livius in honor of Livia, the wife of the then-current Roman Emperor Augustus. The wife Livia would change her name to Julia. And this is why the first-century Jewish historian Josephus called the city by the name Julius. In that same century, when Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 70 AD, the city Julius would burn too. Later, Christians would rebuild the city even seating a bishop there. It's believed to have been located at the archaeological site Tel Rime, which is 6 miles 10 kilometers east of the Jordan. A few scholars believe it to be the same as the town beat Haran. I'll wrap up this episode with two places from Numbers 32 we know essentially nothing about. The first is Sibma. This was a town in the territory allotted to Reuben, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, so in Transjordan, too. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah noted that wine was produced there, which helps to explain why the name translates to either fragrance or coolness. The current thinking is that it was the same as the place known as Sumia. Not only are the names similar, but wine presses made from cut rock were found at Sumia. If true, this would place it about 5 miles, 8 kilometers, east of Heshbon. The final place for this episode is Belmian. Its name translates to the Lord of Dwelling. 
Like Sibmah, it too was allotted to the tribe of Reuben by Moses. The town is best known as the proposed birthplace of the prophet Elisha. According to the Mesha stele, it was taken by Mesha in the 9th century BC. Finally, it's thought to have been located near Mayan, in the modern country of Jordan. This would place it a few miles to the southwest of Madaba, on the road to the Dead Sea. More interesting is that it's the location of a series of beautiful hot springs and waterfalls. Springs that were surely flowing when given to Reuben. And that leaves me wondering why such a natural wonder merited no mention in the biblical text. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll take a break from the geographic places and concentrate on a few of the outside historic people and things found in Numbers. Beginning with Kings Sihon and Og, you don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.